0: They asked me if I would like to, uh, to be the manager, and I said, yeah, and I was hired for that position. I'm John Sullivan, I've uh, uh, been with the BLM almost 41 years. It'll be 41 years in May.
1: In January of 1995, less than two years after the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area was officially established by Congress, John Sullivan became the first manager of this unique NCA.
0: And one of the first things we looked at uh, was the issue of of shooting ground squirrels out there. We looked at it from two levels, one on the impacts of shooting on the ground squirrels themselves and uh, the impacts on recreational safety uh, out there.
1: Once the NCA was established, it quickly became clear to the BLM staff tasked with managing the area that shooting ground squirrels was one of the most popular recreational activities going on within the new NCA. This posed a concern for the birds of prey, who relied on healthy ground squirrel populations to survive, but it also presented a threat to human safety
0: period of two years, or actually three people out there are shot. <laughs> no,
1: two people shot
0: and one guy almost, he was putting in some fence, sitting down there at lunch with his back leaning against the fence post and the bullet actually hit the fence post. One guy had, was shot in the arm when he was working up on his roof. There were some, you know, housing, uh, you know, windows shot and things like that and bullets impacting walls of houses.
1: Recreational shooting was so common and unregulated within the new NCA that people living on the outskirts were being hit by stray bullets. It wasn't just private landowners neighboring the NCA who were being affected by rampant recreational shooting, however. The bill that established the NCA allowed a National Guard Combat Training Center to continue to operate from within the newly created NCA.
0: The Guard said that it was not uncommon for those people driving those tanks to hear the bullets pinging off of the tanks, you know? Because people wouldn't shoot at them because they knew it was You're not gonna hurt a tank, you know? It was right, kind, right. Of, kind of neat to hit something moving.
1: This was the situation that the very first employees tasked with managing the brand new Snake River Birds of Prey NCA faced. Instead of focusing on managing raptor populations, they were forced to address the potentially very serious conflict between recreational shooters and a combat training center run by the National Guard.
0: Their tanks were going outside the designated uh, maneuver areas, you know, uh, into areas that were supposed to be protected from from maneuver activities. They were uh, actually conducting both shooting and maneuvers in areas where people were actively doing recreational shooting, you know, out there, and there were potential really bad safety issues, you know.
1: You're listening to Common Land, a new podcast series produced by the Wild Lens Collective and Radio Boise, with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. Common Land tells the stories behind protected areas. And in season one, we are exploring the creation story behind a truly unique patch of public land in Southwest Idaho. I'm talking about the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, home to the highest concentrations of nesting birds of prey anywhere in North America.
0: We used to have an annual meeting with the guard uh, and I tell you, those first meetings, they were they were brutal. They'd be like eight, nine hours long. Um, and uh, very, very contentious because up until that point, no one was really holding them to anything, you know? And then I came along and I'm a, a little bit of a hard ass. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I started putting my foot down and, and making them toe line, and uh, to which they, they didn't appreciate that, you know? more than one time, I remember the general going to the state director and basically wanted to get me fired. But that uh, luckily, they understood what I was trying to do and, and backed me up, you know.
1: As John Sullivan notes, the creation of the NCA created additional oversight as well as increased public awareness of the National Guard's activities at this combat training center, known at the time as the Orchard Training Area, or the OTA, and now known as the Orchard Combat Training Center, or OCTC. But the National Guard had actually been operating in the area for many decades, as historian and former National Guardsman Dean Hagerman explains.
2: I actually served with the Guard full-time for over 20 years. In 1941, the um, Army Air Corps signed an agreement with the BLM to use the desert land south of Boise as a bombing range. Interestingly, they didn't drop you know, 500-pound bombs out there, they dropped 500-pound sandbags with a black powder charge in it so you could see where it landed. But uh, to create uh, the bombing range, they went out there with bulldozers and tore up the desert to create outlines of buildings and rail yards and all that, so when they flew over it, they could see where to drop their bombs. In 1949, they abrogated the agreement, and in fifty-three, the Guard came in. They just started plowing roads willy-nilly, wherever they needed them. Uh, they started uh, lobbing artillery shells and machine guns and that kind of stuff. Pretty much without consideration, as uh, one adjutant general stated in his annual report, that they were really fortunate the Guard has now got a desert wasteland to train in. Unfortunately, I think that's what most people thought of it was just a desert wasteland. I started training out there in 1980 before they'd had the withdrawal. You know, we weren't concerned about the animals that were out there. We had some limitations as to where we drove. But when Andrus did the withdrawal in in, uh, 1980, I'm not sure anybody fully comprehended the extent that that would impact the training out there.
1: Dean Hagerman makes it clear that at the time of Andrus' administrative withdrawal in 1980, there was very little awareness among his fellow guardsmen of the importance of the area for raptors or other wildlife. There was also very little public awareness in the early 1980s of the very existence of the orchard training area. That, however, was about to change. So it was in
3: 1988 um, that the Guard released proposals that they want to to
1: really enhance and expand the, their use. That's the voice of Karen Steenhoff, who, along with fellow biologist Mike Kokert, conducted the research that established the boundary of the NCA.
3: Environmental groups, especially like Hawk Mountain, and everybody was up in arms that this would happen in the Birds of Prairie area. Well, it turned out that it was the impetus for another integrated, multifaceted research project.
0: It became public that the Guard was out there. Well, the public all of a sudden woke up and said, what? The Guard was very surprised because they'd been out there since 1953. And it's a (laughs) huge area. 130,000 acres, I think, something like that. you know, a significant portion of the NCA.
1: The presence of a military training zone in this area was, and is, quite unusual, as historian Dean Hagerman points out.
2: In the military, they call that kind of training range a kinetic training range, meaning there's stuff being blown up out there. And uh, it's the only kinetic training range anywhere in the world, as near as I can find, that sits in the middle of a conservation area or a natural area of any kind, uh, which is... Crazy
0: Because of the the concerns, the Guard and BLM partnered in what we call the BLM-Idaho Army National Guard Research Project. That was essentially a large team effort, much like the the research that was done in the 70s.
3: And it was almost like... deja vu, we had people looking at the prey, we had people doing raptor telemetry, we had people doing vegetation. The only difference was it was 20 years and the technology had improved a lot. The guard project started in 91 and a lot of the field work wrapped up in 94, but reports weren't written until 96. And of course one of the things in the legislation was that the guard activity would continue.
1: At the time that the NCA Enabling Act was passed and the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area was officially created, the National Guard was given permission to continue its operations from within the new NCA. This despite the fact that Karen and Mike's research documenting the impact of combat training activities on the raptor populations hadn't yet been completed.
3: It was frustrating and it was not only that activity, it was the, the, the thing that bothered us about the legislation at the time is that the burden of proof for any activity was that you had to prove that it was incompatible or else it could continue.
1: So what did the results from the research conducted by Karen, Mike and others in the early 1990s show? There were some effects of guard activity on raptors but
3: they weren't probably as extreme as we had maybe feared but it did change the guards' activities in some ways their tanks don't go through the best sagebrush habitat and things like that.
2: There were more restrictions on particularly tracked vehicles because they break through the crust of the earth, so not only do they damage the plants up front, they destroy the soil the plants are growing in, that has a longer impact. Fires was another uh, big issue.
0: They had one fire that was 30,000 acres in the impact area. That's a significant amount of uh, Habitat we lost in that one fire, caused by live firing activity. You know, I, I actually issued the guard a, a trespass uh, notice, and I guess from in the history of the guard, it was the first time they'd ever actually paid trespass fines for for burning up uh, federal land. You know, uh, because of their activities and and uh, that that was something that didn't really sit well with them <laughs> yeah yeah and for years after that every time during one of their annual meetings that they say you know we've done so much restoration I said, really where and I says as it does it equal the 30,000 acres you burned up in 19 whatever it was 1995-96 you know and that just it was just something I used to kind of gouge them a little bit you know <laughs>
1: While John Sullivan's relationship with the National Guard was clearly contentious, it's also clear that the Guard made significant changes to benefit the management of the NCA during this period.
3: Before the research, if there was a fire in the Guard area, they let it burn. Now they don't. They put it out more quickly probably than the BLM does. So the whole process did result in some changes in the way they did their um, operations.
1: Certainly Sullivan's forceful presence as the manager of the NCA, as well as Steenhoff and Kokert's research, played a role in these changes, but there were also other forces working from within the National Guard.
2: I do want to mention uh, somebody, Sagebrush Sally, and she was the bane of tankers. I will tell you, it's, it's, she created resentment. Uh, and in, to a degree, I think, you know, inspiration because she was the first environmental scientist for the guard that was working out there. But once an area had been designated for set aside, if she found out somebody went in there, you could be guaranteed she was going to get up in your face about it. Uh, you don't do it. and She would explain it and all that. And over time, she also wrote a column from Sagebrush Sally that was really informative and um, I believe that there was a definite culture shift in how the military looked at that land out there.
1: As this culture shift was taking place, an issue emerged that the National Guard as well as John Sullivan and his new NCA staff could get behind. Recreational shooting.
0: I proposed Putting a shooting closure on about half of the NCA, basically everything west of um, of the training area, the orchard training area. And that met a lot of uh, a lot of resistance, especially from residents in Cuna. But I did get a lot of support from people who
4: lived in and around the edges of the NCA that were being impacted by those bullets. We would get a lot of calls from local homeowners or business owners saying, Hey, I got, you know, two bullet holes in my barn, or my kid's swing set has a bullet hole in it.
1: That's the voice of Larry Reidenauer, who was hired as an outdoor recreation planner, becoming the first official employee of the NCA.
4: My job was basically, you know, go out on the weekends, talk to any and everybody that I came across, and let them know, hey, you're actually in a national conservation area now. <laughs> we had three people who were hit by stray bullets. And luckily nobody was killed, but they did get hit and injured. And so it was at that point that we said, hey, we really need to minimize this issue that we're having in long range projectiles. We had come up with kind of an idea of, you know, what we'll do is we'll just create sort of a safety zone for long range weapons, which was primarily rifles and pistols initially, well, there were all sorts of rumors. One of the worst was a, a Idaho statesman headline that said, BLM to close hunting. <laughs> <laughs> so we got a lot of calls that day. Misinformation is tough to deal with a lot of times. You know, we would go to some kind of meeting and we would be there and there'd be this packed room of people wanting to argue with us. All sorts of just different arguments and After they had said all they wanted to, we would say, well, we agree with everything you said, and that's not what we're doing. What we are having is a public safety issue out here where people have been hit with stray bullets. Once you say that, they say, well, you need to do something about that. (laughs) That was very, very uh,
0: politically difficult to get through. In fact, uh, uh, I was called up in front of a congressional hearing right here in town. They, They held it specifically because Uh, The congressman didn't want us to do it, but uh, we we held our ground and and, and got it through.
4: Once we sort of implemented it, it wasn't as big a deal as most people thought. Because at the widest point, it just meant driving about an extra maybe five miles. You know, it took a couple years for that initial push of heavy enforcement. I spent a lot of hours crisscrossing all of those roads across the plateau just to try to find where people are shooting, just let them know if you're shooting here, it's maybe not the safest spot, we'd like
1: you to move a little further south. And and 99 out of 100 times they're like, oh, okay, I didn't know. Although the BLM was able to effectively enforce this shooting closure in the NCA, the recreational shooting issue had not been entirely resolved.
4: The southern boundary on the east side of that restricted area, closure area, is the National Guard area. The Guard wasn't really happy with that aspect of it.
5: We have to cancel um, anywhere between five and seven training exercises a year uh, for Soldier Safety where we'll we'll have citizens actually shooting at the Soldiers. Um, Most of the time they don't know it. My name is uh, Charlie Bond. I'm the Conservation Branch Manager for the Idaho Army National Guard. Uh, so when I grew up, my dad would take me out in what is now the NCA, uh, off Swan Falls Road, um, and then we'd stop and then we'd go shoot. Um, that's just how everybody grew up. When we did that. Use back in that area was considerably lower. The biggest change in use out there has been with our population increase, specifically late 90s, early 2000s when we got that, that first big push.
1: In the late 1990s and early 2000s, the Boise metropolitan area experienced a period of rapid population growth. And although the growth rate has slowed since then, the city continues to be one of the fastest growing areas in the U.S. And as the population swells, popular areas used for recreational shooting are being closed.
5: In approximately 2010, they shut down Black's Creek Reservoir to shooting. Um, There's a private parcel out there and the BLM shut that down. That was a huge shooting area. It was easy to access and everybody went there to shoot. I think that was one of the biggest things that all of those users then got pushed south, um, right into the OCTC.
1: As the use of the NCA for recreational shooting has increased, the public safety concerns of the National Guard have also become elevated.
5: The one thing we don't want is somebody getting shot out there. In 2011, we actually had uh, two of our field techs literally pinned behind a hill. Um, the people were shooting semi-auto and auto at them. They couldn't leave that because they it was consistent shooting. Um, they tried to throw some stuff over, but they actually called one of the other techs and the other tech had to actually drive over and talk to the guys until they finally stopped shooting and they could get up and walk out.
4: BLM is working to actually provide shooting opportunities in specific locations to try to of corral a lot of the dispersed activity into certain areas where it can be done safely.
1: Larry Reidenauer now serves as the National Coordinator for Shooting Sports for the BLM, giving him the opportunity to use his experience working in the NCA to shape the national level approach that the agency takes towards addressing these issues surrounding recreational shooting.
4: I've been on the ground, dealt with those kinds of things of it does decision being made at a higher level and how it affects on-the-ground people. You know, it's not just somebody in DC saying, well, I think this is a good idea, and not really understanding what the consequences of that decision might be. Initially, when we put in our rifle and pistol closure back in the mid nineties, one of the sort of little caveats we put in there was that if a local group wanted to establish a shooting area, like a target range, within this closed area, then we would be open to looking at those proposals. There's a couple of in in Oregon that are on BLM land that are run by a local gun club. And they're You know, great facilities, they're very popular, and the issues with dispersed shooting don't seem to be a problem in that immediate area.
1: But public safety isn't the only issue associated with recreational shooting in the NCA.
5: The fact is that people go out there and they shoot and they do... Target shooting, we basically categorize them as two things, as target shooting and plunking. Um, plunking can be both target shooting and what's, what would be considered hunting. Uh, with, with the primary target out there is the Paiute ground squirrels, which happen to also be the primary. They're probably the keystone species out in the NCA. They're the primary prey species for pretty much everything that's out there.
1: This connection between recreational shooting and the uniquely dense population of ground squirrels in the NCA has been a point of concern since the mid-90s when John Sullivan became the first NCA manager. But now, Charlie and other researchers are seeking to learn how increased usage from recreational shooters is affecting the ecosystem.
5: We can start identifying what are the number of actually ground squirrels being shot. Uh, Right now, we've done some estimates, and some of the estimates are astronomical, the number of ground squirrels that can be shot out there, not only in a yearly basis, but even a weekly basis. We're talking thousands and thousands.
1: It's important to note here that the carcasses of almost all the ground squirrels shot in the NCA are left out in the field. Most raptor species will scavenge opportunistically. So for a long time, researchers have been wondering, is the shooting of ground squirrels bad for raptor populations in the NCA?
5: 2013 to 2015, there was a couple identified um, mortalities of raptors in the NCA. They were identified, they came back, um, basically doing a study on the corpses, there was no... They weren't a lot electrocuted, Uh, there was no uh, bullet wounds or anything like that. So they looked at the necropsy, nothing. They did blood samples and they showed elevated load in their system.
1: An elevated level of lead in the blood of these two dead raptors rang a warning bell for these researchers from the National Guard. Over the past decade, the issue of lead poisoning in scavenging species has become a topic of high concern. In most cases, the lead is coming from ammunition
5: ground squirrels that have been shot with 22s in particular, uh, 22 bullets shrapnelized in the ground squirrels. So then therefore you have these lead fragments inside the ground squirrels. If we've got thousands of ground squirrels being shot on a weekly basis that are full of lead fragments, then all of a sudden we have a huge potential source of lead for uh, trophic accumulation, um, and the raptors in particular.
1: This is potentially a very significant issue for raptor populations in the NCA. Lead poisoning research conducted in other areas has shown that lead exposure is widespread and occurs across a variety of different raptor species. While most of these exposure events aren't lethal, even small amounts of lead, if ingested, can lead to severe impairment.
5: The other part of that is the guard in roughly 2004-2005 stopped using lead rounds altogether. So the Guard hasn't used lead as a round since 2005, so it's been over, you know, 14 years.
1: This situation has created a unique opportunity to address the issue of lead poisoning from spent ammunition. Not only is the U.S. military and the National Guard willing to fund research as well as outreach and education efforts in connection with the lead ammo issue, these entities also represent a trusted source of information for many recreational shooters. This ongoing project focused on the lead poisoning issue may be the best example of the dramatic shift that has occurred in the relationship between the BLM and their NCA staff with the National Guard.
5: The funny thing is I'm actually in a unique position that I've been on both sides of this. Um, I worked for the Guard and knew what they did, and then I worked for the BLM and I knew what they did. One of the nice things when I finally took on this position was identifying those data gaps, if you will, uh, the communication gaps, and taking care of those right away. One of the things that the Guard didn't do very well until the last 10 years um, is to try to educate the public on what the Guard does down there. Right now, everybody just, uh, they think, oh, military training? How can military training and uh, the NCA, you know, pr- protection of raptors, how can those possibly be compatible? When in fact, the, the best residual habitat in the NCA right now happens to be within the OCTC. 73% of the entire OCTC is still considered native vegetation. Whereas, if you go outside the OCTC and the, the, the NCA as a whole, you're in the 45, 40 to 45% is, is native, so less than half.
1: How could it be that this military training area has a higher percentage of good quality habitat than the NCA itself?
5: Our wildland fire program, in my opinion, is 100% the reason why we have the residual sagebrush community we have. Within the impact areas where we actually do any type of firing, that area is a to burn. It's completely gridded out with fuel breaks. Um, we have fire assets on the field. Um, so as soon as there's a fire, they're out there. Uh, average response time for us on those fires is less than one minute. So we're there within literally seconds. We put the fire, the average fire size is 25 square meters.
1: The Orchard Combat Training Center is split into two main zones. The impact area that Charlie just mentioned, which is where most of the training that requires live ammunition and artillery firing occurs. This impact area accounts for close to half of the total area of the OCTC, roughly 65,000 acres of the total 138,000 acres that make up the training area. But even outside of the impact area,
5: I think the average fire size that we have is less than 30 acres.
1: So even outside the impact area of the OCTC, wildfires are very quickly suppressed. In many ways, the story of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area is a story about co-management and collaboration between the Bureau of Land Management and the National Guard. Although this relationship was quite contentious during the early years of the NCA's history, the two agencies are now working together to address current threats to the area and its ecosystems
5: now with um, Amanda Hoffman in place. We work very well with each other.
6: My name's Amanda Hoffman and I'm the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area Manager. So I started in March of 16. Probably the biggest surprise and the biggest challenge was how closely we have to work with the military. I mean a third of the National Conservation Area is Idaho Army National Guard training area. That relationship had been getting better for a number of years, but was still a little rough. We have such different mandates, and so trying to get to a place where we can both kind of coexist in the same area and accomplish both of our goals is a a constant challenge. But I'm really proud of the partnership that we have right now, that we are in a place where we recognize each other's mandates, and we really try to make sure that we're both successful in accomplishing what we want to want to accomplish.
1: Although the Bureau of Land Management and the National Guard have succeeded in establishing a positive and mutually beneficial working relationship over the course of the past two decades, the threats posed by wildfire and invasive species have also intensified over this period. We'll be exploring these threats in the series, but first we must go back much further in time to learn what this landscape and its human inhabitants looked like before European Americans arrived on this continent. Common Land is a production of the Wild Lens Collective and Radio Boise with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA partnership, the Peregrine Funds, Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. This episode was produced by Wayne Burt, Steve Alsop, and myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. The episode was edited by Adam McCoy. Production support was provided by Jessica Evett, Leah Dunn, and Ragged Coyote. Music is by Like a Rocket, Ragged Coyote, and The Great Turtle. Additional audio was provided by the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, freesound.org, and soundsnap.com. Visit our website at commonlandpodcast.com to learn more about the show and to see a full list of credits.